Okay, so we're in 1 Samuel 22 through 24 and in Psalm 63. If you're like, why are we all those places? Let me give you reasoning for it. So we, our heart during this summer series is we want to have some time focusing on uh, the life of David, uh, the life of King David. And so we learn partially through First and Second Samuel, we learn about his life. And so the beautiful aspect of what we get in the life of David is we get a lot of his narrative, we get a lot of the storyline of what's been going on in his life. And there are psalms that he wrote, a journal entry, if you will, of what was going on in his heart as we know about the events that were taking on in his life. And so throughout this series, we're trying to tie in specific narrative moments with psalms that overlap to allow us to know where his heart was while he was going through certain specific things. And so we're going to find that in 1 Samuel 22 through 24 and in Psalm 63. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And so let me catch you up to speed because I know some of you guys weren't here. So David has been anointed as king. He has killed Goliath. And shortly after that, he came under Saul, the current king, and was serving under him. And uh, Saul turned super jealous, envious, to the point of literally wanting to kill David. And so there were multiple times we talked about last week where javelins were thrown, bad accuracy, but the intent was murder, trying to kill David. And so David starts fleeing for his life. To the point where he's having to choose to go mad, to go crazy in front of these people to protect his life. And right out of that, he writes Psalm 34, which we looked at last week. And so we're going to continue that theme. He's in that turmoil. If you can imagine that, that emotional chaos that he's in, fearful for his life. And we're going to pick up there this morning. And so this psalm that we're going to be in is, is probably top five for me when it comes to favorite psalms, but we're not going to get to it just yet, so you're going to have to wait to figure out what it says. And so we're going to say First uh, Samuel 22, we're going to pick up in verse 1. He's fleeing. He's just chosen to choose to go crazy, to avoid potential death. And then in First Samuel 22, verse 1, it says this, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was distressed, in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So he's running for his life, and he finds himself living in a cave. A cave. So your two days with no AC isn't the same. Right, So he's in a cave running for his life. And the people that came to him are, are interesting, if you, if you caught this. Um, there are three different kinds of people that are mentioned here. The distressed, those that are in debt, and those that are bitter in soul. So not the ideal kind of people that you need in a place of despair, but those are the people that were surrounding him in this dark time of his life. So adding insult to injury in the, one of the hardest times of his life, these are the people that surrounded him. Yet, in the midst of it, his circumstances don't jostle him. So we see a little later on that in Saul's rage and insecurity, he begins to complain, and he begins to complain that no one is supporting him. He's super insecure, this guy Saul. And he hears from this guy Doag, a good name if you're pregnant, uh, that a priest had helped David, and so he gets ticked. And so in 1 Samuel 22, verse 9, it says this. Then answered Doag the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse, who was David, coming to Nob to Ahimelech, 
the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And so, uh, so Saul gets super frustrated hearing this report. So there was this priest that helped David, that protected David, that gave him this sword that was Goliath's sword and gave him the equipment that he needed to protect himself. And so Saul gets livid. And so he summons and requests for this priest among 85 others to come before him. And he gets all of them killed. And he goes on this rampage. He becomes this, this monster before our eyes. See, where insecurities aren't dealt with, they don't go away. See, if you ignore your soul, we talk about this often. If you ignore your soul, if you ignore the beast within you, it doesn't get cuter. Over time, if you don't deal with the things in your soul, it only becomes more of a monster. It's like a pet lion. A pet lion could be really cute as a cub, but it'll always grow and I'll always devour you. And in the same way, this is what's happening with Saul. He's not dealt with the realities in his own soul. And they just grow and fester and continue to the point of being where he is today. Saul is a sad case study of this. And so Abiathar, he escapes. One of the priests escapes and he runs back to David and he tells David, bloodshed is everywhere. And he tells David the report of what has just happened. And so we pick up in 1 Samuel 23, it says this, starting in verse 1. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against uh, Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keola, and I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keola and fought when, with the Philistines and, and brought away their livestock and struck them with a, a great blow. So David inhabited there. And so I don't know if you noticed, there's a few phrases that are really important for this discussion this morning. One is how David responded. Like such chaos around him. Could have very easily just sought to take control in his own hands. But it says that he inquired of the Lord two times in these few verses, that he inquired of the Lord, he sought the Lord, he continued to lean into God in the midst of all the chaos, living in a cave, all the chaos that he is feeling under distress, under great turmoil, he continues to lean into and seeking God. There's also a reference of Judah here, just keep that in mind, we'll get back to that in a minute. And so it intensifies, and he, he continues to get Saul chasing after him. He gets, uh, he's running and hurrying and fleeing and, and trying to stay one step ahead of Saul over the coming verses. And then in chapter 24, verse 1, I'm going to read a, a chunk of text. It says this, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Ingida. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men, out of Israel, and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. We're going to get back to that. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David, David's heart struck him. 
because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt, you hunt my life to take it. It's a pretty wild moment here, if, you, if you're tracking with me. So David's hiding in a cave. We already talked about that. And in hiding in a cave, he's deep within the, the realities of the cave, and, and Saul goes in and, and he relieves himself. We're not sure if it's number one, number two, that information's not provided in the original text. But David sneaks up to him and he cuts off a portion of his robe. Stealthily, the, the text says. And he takes it and he brings it back. He's told, he's, he's requested by his people to kill Saul. But he didn't want to take the Lord's anointed. He did not want to take what only God could do, and so he doesn't. And then Saul leaves, and, and David shortly follows after. And he says, I'm proving to you. Like, you're trying to kill me because you think I'm after your throne, and I'm proving to you that I'm not trying to do that. He tries to win Saul over, and he doesn't. Saul continues to try to seek him. But it's in this time of wilderness. It's in this time in Judah, this time in this wilderness, where he's in deep despair and confusion and disappointment and fear, where he pins Psalm 63. And so that's the context of where we are as we pick up Psalm 63. So if you turn over or move your scroll down in your app to Psalm 63, you're going to find at the very top a caption that tells us where we are. This is the Psalm of David. When he was in the wilderness of Judah, let's read what it says. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding you, your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. That's what we sang this morning. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king 
shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is wonderful, heartfelt entry that we get from David. You can translate into any season of life you're in, but it makes it more vivid when you understand where David has been as he's writing this down. It says, oh God, you are my God. It begins there. He's remembering God. We talked about this on last week. He is having to shift his mind away from his circumstances, away from his moment, away from confusion, away from the doubts, and remember who God is in that moment, remembering that he is the creator, that he is the sustainer, remembering that he is the one that has control and that David has none. He's looking to God for sustenance. Then he lays out this description of his active and intentional pursuit of God. This list of words that describe what he's doing. It says, I earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. I have looked for you in the sanctuary, beholding you in your power and glory. My soul clings to you. This is intentional. He's not just throwing up the flare and I'm just a victim of Saul. I'm just waiting for it to pass. No, he's intentional. He's thoughtful. He is uh, seeking God in this disorienting time. He isn't succumbing to thoughts of defeat. He's not throwing up the white towel. He's pressing in and leaning in to God in this way. See, David is teaching us that in seasons of wilderness, feeling disoriented, we're invited to lean into God. We may not thirst, and we may not hunger, and we may not want, but we can want to want to thirst. We can want to want to hunger. We can want to want to desire God. In the book, The Critical Journey, we learn uh, about what is called the stages of faith. And I think it's helpful for this discussion this morning. There's a picture that you guys will see if you can see that. But this, this picture is a general picture of our journey of faith, which helps guide where we are. If you're following Jesus, where you are in your journey of faith. I'm going to flesh this out to us in just a minute. But it, it guides you where you are in your journey. It's not gospel, but it's helpful and will bring us to where David is in his moment. So there are stages that we see here. There's six in particular that are fluid. You can kind of be in one or maybe out of one and back into one. No stage is better. The goal isn't just to get to six. It's like being a kid and an adult. Both are beautiful and both communicate something to us. But there's these three major movements that kind of break up these stages. And so the first is orientation. That's the first three stages. The second is disorientation. That makes up the third stage. And the third uh, movement is reorientation, which is stage five and six. And so I want to look at this with you because I do think that it's helpful for us to understand these things as we look at David in our own lives. So again, the first is orientation. It's orientation toward God. And so it makes up first stage one, which is the top. And it says recognition of God. And so this is the first stage of faith. It's understanding and beginning to recognize that there is a God, that he is God, that I need his grace. I need his forgiveness in my life. It's a aha moment where you begin to realize that there is a God and I am not him. And you begin to orient your mind around the fact that there is a God. For some of you, you learned that at a young age. For some of you, you are journeying through that right now. There's this moment where you realize God exists and my life is in his hands. It's an aha 
moment. It's a recognition of God. The state of the heart here is humility. It moves into this second stage, which is the life of discipleship. And it's in this moment when you begin to learn to be a student of Jesus. You begin to recognize it's not enough. He's not inviting me enough just to understand there is a being that exists far away. But that being came close in the person of Jesus. And he's invited me to follow him. And so it's a, the stage two is learning how to actually follow him with your life. Learning how to pray. Learning how to worship. Learning how to read the Bible. Learning how to connect and grow. It's recognizing that my decision to follow Jesus isn't just on Sunday, but affects my Monday through Friday. And so it's, a, it's learning to grow in this stage of how to actually allow Jesus to, to lead you to follow him in all aspects of your life, taking on his lifestyle and his yoke. So this state of heart is hunger. Learning to grow, this uh, learning aspect is really important. So stage one, recognition of God. Stage two is a life of discipleship. And again, we don't move past that. These are fluid. It's just bringing clarity to maybe where you might be in your own life. The third stage is a productive life. And that's when you begin to see fruit in your life. You begin to feel some stability and steadiness. Things begin to go well for you. Maybe there's a a state of the heart which is uh, contentment. So these three stages kind of make up this orientation, a a turning of your life toward God and following him intentionally. But then disorientation comes. That would be stage four. So disorientation, it's this reality when life makes you bleed. You didn't ask for it, it just happens. A curveball comes or a set of curveballs that you were not expecting and you begin to get confused and how the realities of God and the pain of life can coexist together. You begin to find yourself disoriented. You know, a chunk of confusion around faith today has to do with the church not having answers or better said, space for disorientation. These places of confusion, like we want to be, if we are really a hospital, then we want to be a space for all people that are journeying through faith and even finding confusion along the way. And so this stage four under disorientation is called the journey inward. It's where God becomes the struggle here where we're invited to hang on while God's doing a deeper work with our lives. Like I hope we know this, that it's the pain points of life that actually produce the most amount of growth in our lives. And it's in these moments where we're face-to-face with our realities and having to walk through and navigate through faith in a difficult time. Questions like, who am I, really? Questions like, who is God and where is he right now in these difficult times? Maybe he's not or life's not what I thought it would be. Maybe you thought that if you had faith in God, everything would go well for you. Jesus didn't promise any of that, but you might have been taught that. It's not accurate to who Jesus is. And so when hardship comes and you're like, I have faith. Why can I, my life not be going the way I thought it would? Because I have faith in God. And we learn how to reorient or to shift our mindset in this moment. I believe this is where David is in this time, this wilderness time. That God's doing a deeper work in him. That God's not mad at him. He's in a cave, he's running for his life, he's got these expectations that have been shot down, but it's in that time that he's navigating through and experiencing this deeper work that God's doing in him. It's in these moments where God and his mercy is revealing things. 
It's in these moments where God exposes things. You've been through this. If you've walked through life enough where life throws you a curveball, it's in these moments that these things surface and God wants to meet you there and actually shape you and, and take things and cut things out and remove idols and liberate you. It's in these moments that this stuff happens. He's doing something under the surface and it might feel painful. It might feel disorienting. Honestly, this is where a lot of people tap out with faith. It's where life's good until it's not. And when it's not, and you don't have a palette of God wanting to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death, and we don't have a palette for that, we punt. We punt on God because we begin to think that God and our, our circumstances and the pain of our circumstances define who God is. That's not how we're supposed to do it, but that's how we can do it versus recognizing that God wants to meet us in the midst of those difficult things. And so it's in this time where we hit these walls, we hit these places of difficulty, we hit these unmet expectations and these hardships, and it's in these moments that force us to ask these questions that lead us to a deeper faith in Jesus. See, when disappointment and unmet expectations hit us, unmet expectations about your career, I'm expectations about your relationships or stupid mistakes that you've made or seeing that life's harder than you thought or even in these times where we begin to deconstruct some things that we thought were true and, and what we were taught growing up and we're trying to shift through that. There's nothing wrong with deconstructing as long as we reconstruct upon the foundation of Jesus. But it's in these times where God's doing this deeper work. In church history, that's called the dark night of the soul. where We just don't know where God is. We're disoriented. We're trying to figure out where God is. Things are muted and the inner work is happening while the wilderness is in front of us. And it's here where David says in this disorienting time, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. He says, my, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and weary land. See, faith in the character of God, when life is imploding, is where we are free to not just trust in in a God, but to trust God. It's in this moment where things become personalized and more real for us. It becomes real. It becomes deep. It shifts from seeing God as a means to an end to seeing God as the end in our lives. Reminds me of this story that we read in the Gospel of John where Jesus has said some really hard things in chapter 6 and it's caused some confusion to take place. And he begins to see people, the disciples begin to see people leaving, following Jesus. And they're kind of confronted with this moment in the back end of the chapter. And we pick up here where it says in verse 66 of chapter 6, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've come to we have. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's in these moments, in these spaces when we have the temptation to run from God, but the invitation is to run to God and experience God in the hardship when we don't know where he might be. That's disorientation. It's this journey where God's doing a deeper work within our lives. It's where David is here. And then finally, just to close the loop, we have orientation, we have disorientation, we have reorientation. We can throw the picture back up. And in reorientation, there's these two stages of a journey outward where you begin to realize that your life isn't just for yourself. 
And you begin to want to freely give your life away. It's in these times where you begin to see that this life that you've been given is not just about you. It's not just about what you've been given, but it's about giving it away. It's about being a blessing, being blessed to be a blessing, leading to a life of love and giving our lives away. Again, this can be fluid. You can enter into a journey outward and flow back into a journey inward. It's not, it's, it's not just linear, linear in that way, but these are helpful to understand where we might be in a season of life. So in all these stages, there's both this, this passive and active faith that happens, and we see that in David's life. The passive side, and we see this in, in 1 Samuel 24, where, where David chooses to trust God with his life. He's Saul right before him. He can kill him in that moment. But he chooses to trust God with his life. He, he's been going through this difficulty and he can take it into his own hands in that moment. But he says, I want to trust you with my life. You are God. I am not. And he passively accepts his reality in that moment and trusts God to finish the story that he's writing. But he isn't just passive in this. He's also active. He's, he's seeking and he's pursuing God in very intentional ways. David was both passive and active in his faith. So David likely in this disorienting time actively leans into God and says, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I will seek you. I don't know if Saul will kill me. I don't know where I'm going to have my next meal. I don't know if this is gonna turn out for good, but you are God and I'm gonna seek you. And he leans into God in this space. So as we seek to follow Jesus, we're actively seeking to become learners of him and we're allowing, regardless of what season of life, what movement of life we're in, to lean in, to uh, embrace his rulership in our lives in a passive way and trust him with our circumstances and trust him that he's guiding our life and we're actively seeking him with our life, with prayer and scripture and worship and surrender. So it's in these spaces that we choose to let go and trust him and we choose to actively seek him. So two questions I have for us as we close things up. The first is, are there areas in your life where you are choosing to control areas and God saying, I want you to passively trust me? Maybe you're, you can't forgive yourself or you can't forgive someone else or you can't let go of control of certain things. And God's saying, I want you to trust me. You were never designed to carry the weight that you're trying to carry right now. I want you to let go and trust me with your life. Stop white-knuckling things and trust me. Are there areas in your own life where, man, you're trying to hold on to things that God's saying, let go, trust me. Trust me, you, it's not, you know, we have these temptations in our life where we can intentionally um, try, to, try to think, if I've only done this in the past, and this would be different, and this would be different. We kind of live in hindsight instead of trusting our lot, trusting that God's got us, and he cares for us, and he's good. So are there areas in your life we need to let go and trust? And then secondly, where do you need to actively take a step in seeking God? As David says, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. I long for you in a dry and weary land. Where for us, and is there a step that we can take? Maybe in areas of, of prayer, maybe areas of worship or areas of scripture or fasting. Maybe it's memorizing Psalm 63 this summer. Making it your objective every week. You're going to memorize a verse or two. It's not that long. And read a verse or two and just allow it to wash you and reset your heart to actively seek God together. Man, we're, we're invited to take steps. Some of them are more about letting go of control. 
And some of them are about intentionally taking steps of seeking God. And I believe that regardless of you're in an orientating uh, movement of your life where you're, man, just becoming awakened to the realities of God. And it's like refreshing and life-giving. It's like, oh my gosh, he exists and he loves me and he cares for me. And there's aha realities that are just so beautiful. And lean into that season. If it's more of a disorienting time where you're trying to navigate through some pain points in your life and there's a little bit more of a wilderness, a little bit more of a dark night of the soul, in that time, lean in. Lean into God. He's not leaving you. Again, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. And then even in those spaces of reorientation where God's inviting you to give your life away, lean into that in generosity and care. And I, I invite us to passively let go of areas that we need to let go of and passively and actively seek God together. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are our God. And Lord, we want to seek you earnestly. Our soul thirst. We recognize that nothing in this world will satisfy what our souls thirst for most. Our flesh longs. We recognize that our flesh will not be fulfilled in what the world tells us that it can offer us. But you can. You can bring peace and stability and satisfaction in ways that nothing else can. And I pray this morning that you would remind us of hope. You'd remind us that you're with us. You haven't left us. For my friends that are in different times of life, some that are highs and lows and in the in-between, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you're with us and you haven't left us. Draw near. In Jesus' name, amen.